Hi, this is Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. My job with this show is to educate you on all things training and nutrition, but I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to try to help you on personal development as well. My job with this podcast, my goal and my mission with this podcast is to be your coach through your speakers. If you are new to the show, please do me two quick favors. The first one being hit the damn subscribe button. We drop three episodes per week. It's all free content, and I want to make sure that you are updated on the greatest and latest content. The second thing you can do is scroll down into the descriptions of this episode and check out our top four ranked episodes by the listener. That's gonna be the Nutrition FAQ, the Training FAQ, Nutritional Periodization, and last but not least, my personal journey into fitness. Today's podcast is one that I am really excited about because it is a topic I've been wanting to dive deeper in for a long time, and this is actually part one of a two-part, so I have another expert coming on soon, but this is part one, and this one is with Dr. Amy Bender, who is the Senior Research Scientist at Calgary Counseling Center. So she is actually a sleep scientist, she is a sleep researcher, and she is one of the people that is diving into all things sleep but predominantly for sports performance. Um, Her handle on Twitter where she's most active is sleep for sport That's also where you can find her on Instagram. But she is somebody who is diving deep into the studies and the research behind sleep and the effects it has on sports performance. What you are going to hear in today's podcast is not only very interesting and very informative, but possibly very unfortunate (laughs) to you, the listener, because I know there are a ton of people listening right now that do not get enough sleep, and this is going to be a slap in the face. I know it was for me. But it is very, very informative and it helps shed light on something that is so important for progress. I mean, speaking from my own personal experience, every time I've dived into a cut for a photo shoot or for a show or anything that I get really, really kind of narrow focused and just laser focused on that I really want to achieve, sleep is one of those things that I actually track and make sure I'm doing because I know for me when I don't have a set physical body composition based goal, I let it go by the side. Um, I stay up later to watch Netflix. I focus more on my business, so I still keep waking up early. I'm not as focused on my recovery, and it does hurt my results. But whenever I dive into a cut, I am really, really specific about tracking my sleep and making sure that I am getting enough or by the end of the week that I've at least caught up on it. And that's something we're going to touch on today. But before I talk too much about exactly what we're going to cover, I should probably get into the episode. Um, you guys are really going to like this episode. This is, again, part one of my, I guess you could call it sleep journey or sleep experiments because I'm going to bring another specialist on the show soon. Um, so I am super excited for you guys to learn today from Dr. Amy Bender, who is a Washingtonian a Washington local, so she is from the same state as me. I was pumped to hear that. She's a mother, she's a scientist, she is an avid reader, and she's somebody who's really, really smart, um, especially when it comes to sleep. So I'm excited for you guys to learn with us today. Make sure you grab a pad and a pen and take notes along the way. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help us grow the show, and if you could do me one thing in return for dropping this content, that would be it. Or if you've already done that, Take a screenshot, post it on your Instagram story, tag myself 
at Cody.BoomBoom. Tag Dr. Amy Bender at Sleep4, the number four, sport, so we can see who listens to the show. We can thank you for listening, and we can share your story on our stories as well. All right, guys, I promise I will not gabble and rant any longer. Let's get on to this amazing episode with Dr. Amy Bender. All right, Dr. Amy Bender, as I was just talking to you about before we started recording, I'm really, really excited to have you on the show for a couple reasons. Number one, sleep has been one of those really interesting things to me ever since I had my daughter, which was 17 months ago now. Um, and <laughs> as you, I believe, I, do you have children? I do. I have okay. three. Okay, I thought so. And so you can understand like when that happens, sleep becomes a little bit more of a priority, a little bit more of a serious thing. Um, and I had to change a lot with my nutrition, with my training and how much I could do because I wasn't sleeping as much and then trying to figure out how to get better sleep. And I kind of started digging into the weeds and you really start to realize how important it is. Um, and then the other side of that is we have so many clients uh, that are focused on changing their body composition or improving their performance in the gym or on, in their sport, say CrossFit or bodybuilding or even things like football. And it's such a hard sell because they want to talk about the sexy stuff like program design and power cleans and going harder in the gym. And it's like, no, we have to start with the fundamental thing. So I'm really, really excited to have you on because you're a specialist that can really bring the science and teach people how important this is. Um, but before we get into those topics that I am so excited to talk about, let's get into your story. So if you can give us, for the listeners, uh, kind of your story in a nutshell, who is Dr. Amy Bender? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show, Cody. Um, yeah, I guess I started off in the sleep field with interest from my aunt. So she was a sleep technologist in Portland, Oregon. And I was kind of at a crossroads where I was, was looking for something a little more intellectually stimulating. And she said, hey, come out to my sleep lab and I'll show you what goes on. I'll show you how we hook up participants and patients with the electrodes. I'll show you what the physiological signals look like. And it was just absolutely fascinating to me being able to see on the screen live um, the electrical activity of the brain and the muscles and the eye movements uh, was amazing. So I ended up landing a job. Luckily, I started volunteering in a sleep lab, um, landed a job at Washington State University at the Sleep and Performance Research Center pretty much by luck. And at one of the world-renowned sleep labs, looking at uh, sleep deprivation and the impact on cognition, was a sleep technologist there for four years, and then decided I wanted to transition to grad school, got my master's and PhD in experimental psychology at uh, at Washington State University working in the sleep lab, and then decided to combine my passion with athletes uh, working at, did a postdoc at University of Calgary, trying to optimize sleep in Canadian Olympic team athletes. And currently, I'm, I'm still doing work with athletes, but I'm currently the senior research scientist at Calgary Counseling Center, trying to incorporate sleep interventions for better mental health. Got it. Okay. So one question that comes to mind when you started talking about um, actually tracking what's going on in the brain while people are sleeping, which I can imagine is pretty, pretty interesting. What, and this isn't even on our list of topics, but it got me thinking about REM sleep and everybody's always talking about REM sleep and how you need to get in that state and what happens to your dreams when you get there. Can you explain to the listeners what REM sleep is and how to tell if you're actually getting there? And, and maybe even if this is relative to it, like the important 
the importance of actually dreaming, if that makes sense, mm, like remembering yeah. your dreams? I mean, all the stages are important, so I don't want to just hone in on REM sleep. Um, and we can't really control this, how we progress through the stages across the night. I mean, there's certain things we can do during the day to try and maybe increase our deep sleep. So exercise is one of those, um, you know, after you have a hard workout, you end up with more deeper sleep, um, potentially diet intake. So fiber intake increases deep sleep. Um, not a lot of the research, we don't really see too many things that might increase REM sleep. We see instances where REM sleep can be decreased so for example, if someone gets up at five in the morning, they've only had five hours of sleep, we'll typically see a lot of our REM sleep occurring in the last half of the night. Um, so cutting your sleep short, you're likely also cutting your REM sleep. But I guess, let me back up a little bit um, and talk a little bit about the distribution of stages across the night. So we have non-REM sleep, which is comprised of uh, non-REM one, non-REM two, non-REM three. So non-REM one is really light stage of sleep occurring about 5% across the night. So not very much of that lightest stage of sleep. Uh, then we'll transition into non-REM two, which is takes up about 50% of our sleep time across the night. So we see a lot of non-REM two across the night. Um, and then we'll progress into, we'll have some minutes of, of two, stage two, we'll progress into non-room three, which is the deepest stage of sleep. And a lot of that deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night. So we'll see people getting uh, deep sleep occurring in the first two sleep cycles, let's say. So we have non-REM sleep, then progressing into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And so that would be a complete sleep cycle. Uh, roughly about 90 minutes. And so we'll go non-REM to REM and we'll cycle. We'll go through those cycles throughout the night, maybe five, five times, six times throughout the night, depending on how much you're sleeping. And what we see is that um, deep sleep is important for athletes and for, I guess, the general population as it relates to um, growth hormone is being released we see with improvements in deep sleep, we'll see improvements in memory. Um, and then REM sleep is more associated with procedural memory. So if you're learning a new task, uh, learning a new skill, learning a new play, um, REM sleep plays an important role on being able to utilize those, those memories and being able to um, learn from a task. Okay. So what classifies uh, sleep deprivation, I guess? And is that like, is sleep deprivation, deprivation the uh, furthest degree of poor sleep? Is there anywhere in between? I guess I'm trying to almost like get a scale for people because uh, there's obviously, I, and I didn't realize that we actually go through these cycles multiple times through the night. Uh, from somebody who doesn't study sleep, my assumption was, you know, you're not in deep sleep and then you go through this REM sleep and then you kind of come out of it slowly until you wake up and it's just like one long thing, but it sounds like we're constantly going in and out of this. Absolutely. So we're cycling in and out. Um, and so what we'll see, so for example, I worked in the sleep lab, we're doing sleep deprivation studies where people are being sleep deprived for 62 hours. So that's two full nights without sleep. And we'll see 
this accumulation of adenosine, I don't want to get too technical, but um, this accumulation of adenosine in the brain, this sleepiness that's occurring from staying up, um, we'll see huge amounts of deep sleep related to that to re be able to recover from that sleep deprivation. And so if someone, you know, maybe gets five hours of sleep, we'll see a lot of deep sleep occurring the next night to kind of make up for that a little bit. And so the cycles, the length of the cycles depend on many different variables, um, how much sleep you've had the previous night, whether you've taken a nap. So if you've taken a nap, you're getting rid of some of that adenosine. So you'll likely have less deep sleep during that night. Um, so it, it can be kind of complicated, but I think the take home message is to, you know, really try and prioritize the amount of sleep that you're getting to aim for between seven and nine hours. So if you're continually getting less than seven hours, you're likely sleep deprived. There's only about 1% of the population that can get by on six hours or less of sleep and have no performance decrements. So really being aware of that and um, trying to also improve sleep quality as well. Right. Um, so a couple of questions based on that. The first one's probably going to be pretty quick and easy, but I think we have to lay this out because I've heard about this. Uh, it's a genetic thing. It's a gene, essentially, um, I believe that mm -hmm. you are that 1% of people. And I think a lot of people listening <laughs> will go, and I think <laughs> I'm even guilty of this is like, oh, that's me. Like, I'm, I'm that guy. I can get by because <laughs> I feel fine. But I think it's like so much more rare than people believe. And I think sometimes, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, certain people just have like a, a really uh, resilient mindset for kind of grinding and hustle and grit. And, and I get that. But I think that if you actually gave the, your body the opportunity to sleep more, you might find that like, oh, I can actually hustle even more <laughs> if I actually sleep. So what is the percentage and what is that gene? Um, just to let people know they probably don't have it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a gene mutation. I don't remember the gene specifically, but ex exactly. It's a gene mutation occurring. Um, there's a famous quote, and they say, basically, if you round up to the nearest percentage, the amount of people that can get by on, less, on six hours or less sleep without any performance decrements, it's 0%. So that percentage <laughs> is really, really low less than 0.5% of the population. And in all of my presentations, I point out the fact that, you know, you think, oh, I'm fine, I can get by on less sleep. But in reality, we're looking at less than a percent of the population. So in reality, the likelihood is that it's probably not you unless, you know, you're getting five hours of sleep, you feel fine. It's, it's ran in your family, so your, your mother, your grandmother, you know, also seem to have short sleep as well. And I think it's tricky because once we start sleep depriving ourselves, we, the ability for us to gauge our performance goes down. So you see in the lab, you see objectively they're performing terrible. But when you ask them how they perform, you know, they're like, oh, I'm not so bad. And so that's part of the effects of sleep deprivation is you lose your ability to actually gauge how well you're doing. Mm, so it's almost like I know inhibition drops, but obviously almost your perception as well. 
Mm -hmm. okay. um, risky, risky behaviors increase. So you make more riskier decisions without even realizing you're making the risky decision. Jeez. I mean, basically everything bad happens if you're sleep deprived. But <laughs> So getting back to REM sleep, um, and I think that's good for the listeners. I don't know off the top of my head. I am going to do the calculation of what 0.5% of the population is and put it in the show notes so you can see um, how little that is actually for the, is it the country or the world that that percentage is based off of? The world. Yeah. Okay. It's just everyone out there. Okay. Um, anyway, and so I mean, this percentage can range. Um, but yeah, it's a very, very, very small percentage. It, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I just think it's so funny how many times I've heard this brought up and how many times in a small room of people, like half the room of trainers or coaches will raise their hand and be like, oh, that's me. That's got to be me. <laughs> and I'm just like, there's statistically, Absolutely. there's just no way. So, um, yes. but with REM sleep, um, going back to the dream thing, something, and this might just be kind of folktale, but I've always heard if you can't remember your dreams, that's not a good thing. And, and I don't know if that's like our way of gauging REM sleep. So I guess my question is, is like, is there any validity to that? And then what allows us to remember dreams if you know, or if any of us know? And then lastly, how can we gauge REM sleep? Is it really just a matter of like, oh, hit seven hours or more? Or is there a way for us to actually track and see that we are getting in that? Um, I know there's a lot of trackers out there, but I also know there's a lot of studies to show some trackers aren't that um, accurate. So I just want to kind of get your thoughts on being able to track it. Yeah. I mean, um, it's the only way you can truly track it is if you're hooked up with EEG electrodes. So elect when we're studying the electrical activity of the brain, um, some trackers have correlated with EEG. So uh, some of the trackers will have heart rate variability, pulse oximetry, um, temperature and so they're able to kind of get a general idea of when they're going into REM but when we look at overall sleep trackers in general there is a very poor correlation with when they're telling you you are in REM and when you're actually in REM or for that matter deep sleep it, it we're just not quite there yet with the technology um, related to the question about is it a bad thing if we don't remember our dreams? Um, actually, that's, that could be, it's actually false because what we find is that those people that remember their dreams have to wake up within REM sleep in order for that to occur. So you, we will see a lot of variability. So some people will say, oh, I remember my dreams a lot. I dream a lot. Um, another person will say, oh, no, I don't dream at all. I never go into REM. It's, it's not true. I mean, everyone goes into REM regardless of if you remember your dreams or not. And it may be the case where an individual doesn't think they dream, they don't remember their dreams, but it could be that their sleep, they have actually a better sleep quality because they're not waking up as often to be able to remember those dreams. Now, there are extreme cases where uh, you get someone with sleep apnea, so that's where they stop breathing during the middle of the night. Um, they may be snoring, and then they stop breathing. Um, those individuals ha show a decrease in REM sleep. Um, you know, so in that case, it may be that they aren't going into REM very often. Um, and then when we treat them with 
continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP, we'll see huge REM rebounds. So we'll see they kind of make up for that lost REM sleep when they can actually breathe well and have a good quality sleep. Okay. That is somewhat disappointing because, and the reason I say that is because me and my fiance always joke, I always remember my dreams. And now I'm like, shit, I'm not getting enough sleep, <laughs> um, which makes sense. I get up early. We have a young daughter. So I'm, I'm definitely not abiding by the seven hours per night rule every night. Um, but that makes a lot of sense that it would be a matter of you're waking up. If you're waking up in your dream and, or close enough to it, you remember it. It's probably not a good sign because you're not going all the way through that cycle. Um, my next question would be about sleep deprivation specifically, if we can give kind of like an easy definition and then basically the list of negative impacts. Um, I know that might be a lengthy list, but if we can kind of summarize that in the context of like fitness and nutrition, composition, performance, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, So related to, sorry, what was your first point? So so what actually is sleep deprivation? And we can kind of go into what it causes. Okay. Um, So sleep deprivation, I mean, there's many ways to think about it. Typically in research, we think of total sleep deprivation as missing a full night's sleep. And then we kind of work our way backwards from that into sleep restriction, which is where you're restricting your sleep and you're not getting the full seven to nine hours. Um, Now, I I didn't really talk about the individual variability of sleep needs. So seven to nine hours, that's kind of a huge range. So it can be difficult for people to figure out, well, how much sleep do I really need? I think thinking about waking up without an alarm clock, if possible, in an ideal situation um, really means, you know, you've completed that full, full night's sleep. You wake up without the alarm clock in kind of a normal sleeper um, is a good sign that you're getting enough sleep. If you're not needing a ton of coffee throughout the day, if you don't feel like you need to take a nap, you know, and if you're not falling asleep during work, you know, those are all good signs that you're getting enough sleep. But honestly, yeah, we want to aim for that minimum of seven hours, generally speaking. And then, um, there are many, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, there are many problems with sleep deprivation. So, so I would say sleep deprivation could be not getting seven to nine hours, you know, throughout the week. So it may be acute sleep deprivation. You may have one night where you get five hours, not a big deal. Um, we can always make, I believe that we can make up for that sleep and we see in the sleep EEG, we see changes in the brainwave activities. We see deeper sleep. We see a different type of sleep after that acute sleep deprivation. But I think it becomes a concern when someone is day in and day out, week after week, month after month, you know, not getting the amount of sleep that they need are kind of compensating with coffee um, and those kind of things. That's when it can be a, become a problem. And what we see in the literature is that sleep is a foundation of health. So those who aren't getting good sleep, we see higher increased risk for diabetes, obesity, cancer, Alzheimer's disease. You know, we see this higher risk 
for those who are continually, chronically sleep deprived. Um, and interestingly though, in parents, I mean, you mentioned you, you have a young one at home and I have, my youngest is now almost two. Um, we don't see, we don't typically see a higher increased risk of mortality in those who are parents versus those who aren't because of that sleep deprivation. So I think more needs to be worked out here, but I think in general, acute sleep deprivation, not a huge deal, but if we're talking chronic, you know, month in, month out, year in, year out, um, that's when it becomes a problem for health. Got it. Okay. And I think it's cool to know that like, you know, if you have to wake up super early to do something tomorrow and you can't get in bed on time to get seven, just make sure you get eight or nine the next day and you'll probably be okay. Um, but as far as the alarm goes, there's a lot of different, like, I know there's one that almost like lights up your room a certain way. So you wake up to a natural light. There's one that waits till you're like coming out of that deep sleep before it goes off. Is there any recommendations you have for alarm clocks? So it's not just like an abrupt waking up um, from your sleep. If somebody is like, Hey, that's great that I could just wake up naturally, but I got to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's not necessarily realistic for someone unless they have a flexible work schedule to be able to wake up without an alarm clock. The ones that use light, they're called dawn simulators. So they kind of simulate dawn, so they start off uh, really light and then they get brighter and brighter and brighter as, as you wanna wake up. Those have actually been shown to, to work really well, especially in night owls. So those people who really um, wanna go to bed late and wake up late, they find that the dawn simulator alarm clocks can help them kind of ease that transition, help them wake up a bit more naturally than, you know, a standard alarm clock. Okay. So, and I actually think you brought this up on a different podcast that I was, I was listening to. Is there any, I don't know what the word, I guess like night owls like that. Is that like a, a, a real thing um, for certain people or is that more of like a, a mindset like, no, you're not a night owl. You need to get on a normal sleep schedule because that's just how your circadian rhythm works. Or is there alterations in that? There's, it's genetically based. So they found that um, being a night owl and being an early bird is related to your genetics. And it could be related to also, so your genes may determine your sensitivity to light. So they're finding that night owls are typically more sensitive to light at night and that could be exacerbating the problem. So they, they have alerting or they have bright light at night and it's alerting them more in the night owls than what we see kind of in an intermediate type, um, which is then kind of decreasing their melatonin and making it harder for them to go to sleep on time. Um, so yes, night owl will typically see people who it's a, roughly about 15% of the population, those who like to go to bed after midnight, you know, wake up after 9 a.m. would be a definition of a night owl. And then your early birds are, you know, trying to go to bed before 10 a.m., wake up before 6 a.m., and again, about 15% of the population. And then the rest of us, 70% kind of fall in between, or intermediate in between the early bird and the night owl. Is, is there any sure shot way of knowing what you are? Is it really just like, what do you prefer? What does your body kind of naturally or your gut kind of tell you that 
you fall into? There's definitely questionnaires out there and I'll, I'll, maybe I'll put, uh, maybe we can put a link in the show notes. Um, there's really simple questionnaires for people to fill out and we could put one of those in the show notes. Um, there's a person who's touting these other different types of chronotypes. Um, so like wolf and I don't even know the animals that they're using, but, um, typically the research only talks about early bird and night owl and then kind of the rest of us fall in between, but we can for sure put a uh, questionnaire in the show notes for you. Yeah, that would be super helpful uh, for people. So as we go into this discussion of sleep deprivation and all the negative side effects, it's obvious that health is going to take a hit. And I think from an intuitive standpoint, we can easily say like, you know, if your health is declining and your energy is declining and you're relying more on caffeine, which I'm assuming is going to wear and tear on your nervous system and your adrenals, performance is probably just going to go to shit for lack of better terms. If, But if you can elaborate maybe on why that is, if there's anything more to add to that, and then also dive into the the mental aspect, because you, you kind of mentioned like your interest in the cognitive side of things. And I, I find that really interesting, especially because you know, how much work we can get done in a day. And I guess what interests me is it might be counterintuitive. People are like, I need to wake up at five and be in the 5am club to get more work done. But it's like, well, if you're sleep deprived, are you like trading nickels for dimes kind of thing? Like, are you getting less sleep and being less productive in the time you have because you're trying to wake up so early when you'd be better off sleeping in and just doing more efficient work? Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the kind of science behind why the mental side of things takes such a big hit. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what we typically see is when someone's sleep deprived, um, we'll see an increase in micro sleep. So they may, um, it may be a head nod, which is an obvious sign that there's sleep occurring, but it may be even a lapse in attention where they have their eyes open and they just kind of blanked out. And what we see what's going on in the brain is that actually neurons, specific neurons are falling asleep during that time. So in the extreme situation, um, you know, they'd fall asleep, maybe have a micro sleep where they fall asleep for a few seconds, more of those neurons are, are then falling asleep. But in the instance of a lapse of attention, we'll see more like a smaller number of neurons where if you hook them up to an EEG, when you wouldn't really see sleep during the electrical activity of the brain. But what we're finding is that it's more like part of your brain is asleep during those instances. And, and so this is just a sense of basically, is your brain just not firing on all cylinders in another sense throughout the day? Yeah, I mean, it, when you're sleep deprived, we see huge impacts on cognition. Um, mood is impacted. That's one of the first things that goes. So you just people are in poor moods. They feel more anxious. They feel more depressed. Um, but we see lapses of attention increase, reaction time increases. So they're just not, they're not, you know, at their full potential when they're sleep deprived. And, and what would be, if there's any um, research on this, like uh, decision fatigue or, or the ability to make decisions, self-discipline? Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in the standpoint of like adherence to a diet, for example. Like is your ability to adhere and stay consistent and, and make the right decisions to eat healthy lowered because of sleep deprivation? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, the your subjective ability, yes, your decision making. You know, you kind of we've all experienced when we haven't gotten a good and good night's sleep. We don't want to exercise. We, you know, we're tired. We don't want to do anything. We don't want to make good, healthy food choices. We don't have the energy to prepare our meals. Um, but I would say when we're talking about in relation to diet, there are hormonal changes going on as well. So um, we'll see a week of sleep deprivation leads to um, people consuming about 500 more calories. And that's related to their ability to kind of make good decisions, but it's also related to the hormones. So we see um, appetitic hormones such as leptin, the, the feeling of being full um, decreases with sleep deprivation. We see ghrelin, the feeling of being hungry increases. So we see those hormonal changes going on as well. Very interesting. And, and this is, I mean, this is obviously very applicable to the people listening. What about with muscle mass and performance? Is that just a matter of time in bed just allows less time for your body to actually rebuild tissue? Is, is that the growth hormone response that you were talking about? What, what is the main thing affecting performance and muscle mass? I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if we know the answer to that. Uh, there was a recent study looking at just one night of sleep deprivation, so pulling an all-nighter, and they did fi find an increase in the ability of adipose tissue to store fat. They saw an increase in cortisol to break down muscle. And so looking at, they're doing biopsies of the adipose tissue and the muscle, and they're seeing these impacts just with one night of sleep deprivation. So I think there's a lot to be explored here, um, but bottom line, it, it is impacting adiposity and um, lean muscle mass. That's really, I, I think just the, the, the fact alone that it's increasing stress, increasing cortisol, that tells us enough that you're probably not going to be in an anabolic mode enough to continue building muscle. And obviously those things have a big effect on performance as well. Just cortisol constantly being high, you're probably not able to kind of shift into parasympathetic and actually recover properly from all you're doing. Um, so, so we know that it affects performance, muscle mass and fat loss from kind of a lot of different indirect reasons. I don't know if we can, I mean, I guess you could probably say, and I've read this and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sleep deprivation likely lowers your metabolism or slows metabolism down through all these different things as well. But indirectly, I think a lot of negative things are happening during sleep deprivation that's hampering people's results with their bodies. Now, what I really want to like do to tie this together with it, like, something that people can take home with is classifying what that means. And, and if you can, I don't know if we can do this, but looking at somebody's week, like what is the bare minimum that they need to make sure that they're not suffering from these consequences? Cause we see a lot of people that come to us inside our coaching program for results with their body and they want to see changes in macros and calories and training. And it's like, is all that useless because you're not sleeping enough and it's so hard to get that buy-in that I would love for you to be like, this is the bare minimum of what we need. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And I think there's a lot to be explored here. Um, you know, what we see in the research is more extreme situations. So a person pulling an all nighter and the impact on, you know, fat and um, muscle mass, but in the real world, you know, the likelihood of us pulling all nighters is, is 
pretty slim unless they're in college. Um, but it's more about the chronic, you know, losing an hour here, losing an hour there. And I don't think really, really have a prescription for what that minimum might look like. I mean, it depends on how much sleep you need, how much, you know, do you need more of that nine hours versus that seven hours? I would say if we, if we could define a minimum, I would say trying to just get the seven hours minimum, um, which likely equates to being in bed for, you know, seven and a half hours because it takes us time to fall asleep. We wake up during the middle of the night, you know, so really trying to be in bed for seven and a half hours and then kind of play around with it. So um, you could potentially just track how well you feel in the morning, like how well you felt your sleep quality was and play around with what happens if I do a week of sleeping six and a half hours and what happens if I do a week of, you know, sleeping eight and a half hours and just kind of playing around with that number. What we see, if we look at uh, research by Stanford researchers looking at sleep extension, um, they kind of started that, that um, line of research and, and told basketball players to be in bed for 10 hours. So these, the men's division one basketball team at Stanford, when they studied their sleep objectively, they found they were only getting, you know, 6.7 hours. They were getting less than seven hours of sleep. And they told them, all right, we want you to be in bed for 10 hours. And so they increased their sleep by about an hour and a half per night um, for a span of, of six weeks. And they found that their reaction time decreased, their mood improved, their free throw percentage improved, their three-point percentage improved. All of these performance factors improved including, you know, just alertness and, and mood as well. So I would argue, you know, yes, you can go for the minimum, but what happens when you try and get a little bit more? Yeah. One, and this is kind of for the analytical person, kind of rebuttal that. What would you say to somebody if they asked, okay, well, my schedule changes pretty frequently. Would I be able to get away with 49 hours as my minimum per week? And the reason I say that is because seven hours a night times seven days a week is 49 mm -hmm, hours. Mm -hmm. Is there any merit to that statement? Or is it like, no, like getting three hours one night and 12 the next night doesn't work. Like, obviously that's an extreme setting. But even if we're saying like, oh, I got five hours one night, but I got nine the next and then seven, seven, eight, six kind of thing like that. Absolutely. That is a great point. And that is one of the things we stress to our athletes is to think of sleep need across the week. So calculate kind of that minimum across the week. And then if you do get a poor night's sleep, how can we make up for that across the week? So can I sleep in a little bit later? Can I take a nap during the day? And, and even the opposite. So if I'm going into a sleep deprivation period, how can I bank sleep leading into that sleep deprivation in order for my performance to be not really affected? And that's what the research shows. And that's a huge tip that we give to our athletes is to bank sleep leading into an important competition, an important meeting, getting more sleep in the week before, potentially two weeks before the research has shown to be very beneficial. It doesn't have to be six weeks like the Stanford study. And to just think about sleep across the entire week 
And if you do get a poor night's sleep, how can I make up for that across the week with a nap or potentially going to bed early? I love that. I think that's super applicable for the everyday person listening. So I'm glad I asked that. Um, one other thing that kind of comes up in my mind is, um, is, is there any merit to just hours in bed? Like I know that some people lay in bed um, and can't fall asleep necessarily. I know there's something to say about just time at rest where you're just laying down, your body's not moving, not functioning, not really thinking hard. Is there any merit to that or is it no? Like you have to be eyes shut, knocked out. No, I think even in a napping situation, so we'll run into a lot of athletes who say, I can't nap, I can't do it. You know, they've tried and it does take some practice, so I wouldn't tell them to give up completely. That's me. But there, <laughs> there, is, there are benefits to just laying there with your eyes closed. Um, and this is more, I would say during, I would recommend this for during the day rather than at night. Um, but there are benefits to laying there, reducing the arousal, reducing, you know, activating that parasympathetic nervous system there are benefits to that versus obviously sleeping is better, but um, we do see benefits to just laying there decompressing. Um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's probably why there's, there's benefits in a lot of people swear by meditation as well. Cause it's very similar. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, but I would say that when we're talking about sleep at night, that can be problematic. So I don't want to tell an athlete to be in bed for 10 hours if they're just laying there for the first, you know, hour. Mm -hmm. So what that's going to do is it's going to cause um, you to associate your bed with being awake. And we don't want that. That could potentially lead to insomnia. So a good piece of advice would be to try to go to bed when you're sleepy. Um, if you can't fall asleep within 20 minutes, get up out of bed, do a relaxing activity, and then only return to bed when you're sleepy because then when you're in bed, you're sleeping. And then that also applies during the middle of the night when people wake up during the middle of the night. Um, if you're lying there, and I'm not, I'm, I do not have a, a clock in my room whatsoever. I don't even have a cell phone. So I don't really... I think that can lead to more anxiety, actually, if you're constantly checking the clock and, oh, has 20 minutes passed, um, I should get up. You know, just kind of generally gauge it. If you've been laying there awake in bed for, you know, roughly 20 minutes, get up out of bed and then only return to bed when you're sleepy. I like that. And I think, unfortunately, it probably is best to not go to your bed as a place to watch TV for long periods of time as well. Um, and, and I'm the same way. I don't have a clock in my room. Um, I keep my phone out of arm's reach because that's my alarm, but it's, it's too far away for me for me to even check notifications, know what time it is, anything like that because of that exact purpose. Um, my, my last question on this little kind of topic is something that I heard when the float tanks kind of became a popular thing. And, and I believe it was marketing hype and they did it well, but I don't know if there's any validity to it. So I want to ask you the expert, um, is like, I don't know the exact hours, but I read somewhere about how like one hour of a float tank is equivalent to two or three hours <laughs> of sleep kind of thing. And so people are like, uh -huh. Oh, I can just not sleep and then go to the float tank every weekend for a few hours and I'll catch up. Is there any truth to that? My gut is no. Um, <laughs> Great marketing. But there isn't, there is not research on this. So there's literally, I looked at the research a few months ago 
and there's literally maybe two studies on float tanks. One study didn't really show too big of a benefit as it relates to sleep quality. Um, another study found a slight benefit in sleep quality, but I would say, yeah, absolutely not. I don't think you can substitute sleep with a float tank. I think in my personal opinion, I think a lot of it, it just could be placebo, which is a real thing. And then I think also just it, for some people who are into meditation or can lay down and calm their mind down away from distractions and anxiety, I think it could be good for them to go into that parasympathetic kind of like a nap. But I, but I agree. I, I didn't think it would be something to replace sleep, but I had to bring it up because I've been asked that question quite a few times if there's any truth to that. So I'm glad that you can kind of nail the, the coffin shut. Um, the next thing I had on my list to discuss with you is actually food. So in both manners, how food and sleep interact. So basically, what is sleep's effect on food, as in uh, blood glucose, uh, nutrient partitioning, so on and so forth, basically how your body is handling the foods that we take in, and then also food's effect on sleep. So how can we adjust food to enhance sleep, or does that even matter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I talked a little bit about um – with sleep deprivation, we see, you know, an average of 500 more calories consumed. And we'll typically see those people who are sleep deprived crave more sugars, they crave more fats. And so that's, uh, they actually have a decrease in vegetables and fruits. And so that could be the reason for the increase in calories, just the, the content is changing and for the worse. Um, and then we see those hormones being changed as well with sleep deprivation. Um, when it comes to the, your second part was. Kind um, of like, like, I mean, the effect, like does our, uh, blood glucose levels or our tolerance mm. for food, like, does that change or alter if we are sleep deprived? Um, because, that could essentially like my reasoning for that question is telling somebody like, Hey, like, you know, you let, let's say for example, somebody has to go into a calorie deficit to lose weight and they have to eat 1600 calories to successfully lose weight, but they're only sleeping five hours a night. If we bump that up to seven, does their body's ability to handle these calories improved so they could actually diet on a deficit of 1700 or 1800 calories. Um, and kind of in that realm, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not super familiar with that area. I mean, I know that glucose levels, glucose levels definitely change and metabolism changes with sleep deprivation. So for example, um, you know, they find that those who are getting less than six hours of sleep are, you know, five times as likely to have fasting glucose levels in the pre-diabetic range. Mm. So um, it certainly impacts the glucose levels, it impacts metabolism, but I don't think we're quite, again, I don't think we're quite there to be able to prescribe different sleep amounts and how that might impact um, caloric intake or the way we, we metabolize. Got it. Okay. And, and, and this is obviously speculation, a little bit of anecdote on my part, but for the listeners too, like... I've done this personally, I've used it with clients, and I know a lot of coaches in the bodybuilding world that kind of use uh, blood glucose monitors to kind of see where people's levels are at. And if your numbers are too high and too close to that diabetic range, your body can have a, a tough time breaking down carbohydrates for fuel, and that can cause less, uh, less progress with fat loss. 
in hindsight, what I'm saying is if you are sleep deprived and these blood glucose numbers are going in a more poor direction, you're less likely to be able to break down carbs and actually use them for a good reason. So it probably will cause some troubles, but hopefully they'll do more further research on that um, in the future. The, the other part of this question was food's effect on sleep. And the reason I really wanted to bring this up is because I was listening to your po a podcast interview with you and you, I believe you mentioned a study that showed individuals who actually placed their carbs in the morning versus at night had better quality sleep, which really surprised me because carbohydrates can spike insulin. Insulin can drop cortisol, help you go into a parasympathetic state. That's why we like carbs post-workout. Um, and that in my mindset would theoretically mean, hey, you're probably going to get better sleep. And I know a lot of people swear by like, I push my carbs in the afternoon because it helps me sleep better. But mm -hmm. this, this study showed the complete opposite. So now I'm like, is that a matter of cortisol is high in the morning naturally? And that's why we have carbs in the morning. Like, can you kind of explain what they did in the study and, and what we can kind of use this for in practical application? Now, there was some research looking at um, high carb, low fat versus low fat, high carb. And what they found in general, they found an association. So it's not causal by any means, but they found that the, the high carb, low fat um, had less arousals during the night. So less awakenings during the night and that they fell asleep more quickly versus the low carb, high fat, where they had more benefits on deep sleep. So I think there's kind of a give and take depending on the diet that you're, that you're on. Um, and then I would say that an increase in fiber shows an increase in deep sleep. So they find that those who increase their fibering intake actually have more deep sleep, which as I mentioned earlier, could mean more growth hormones being released. And okay. then those with uh, higher fat intakes, and if, you know, if we're talking about a very controlled study where they're given a set diet and then they have a, a chance to eat whatever they want, they found in that particular study that those who increased their fat, in, fat intake had a decrease in deep sleep those who increased their sugar intake and non-fiber carbs had more awakenings during the night. So there's kind of conflicting evidence. And, um, but yeah, I would say in general, it's, it's okay to say that higher increases in fiber typically leads to better sleep quality and it may be uh, better, more deep sleep that's occurring. Just, just to summarize that and just so I can kind of get a grip on what's, what's being said, it's, I assume that like any association with poor sleep with higher carb diets may be more related to the composition of those carbs. Because if we know that lower carb diet may lead to deep sleep, but high fiber diets lead to quality sleep as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Would that mean that yes. if we had higher carbs, but they were from whole foods and high fiber and, and good starches and good fruit and produce that we're more likely to have a deep sleep? Absolutely. That's a great way to interpret, interpret those results that it may be more about the quality of the food versus, you know, carb versus low carb. But that's good to know as well, because I think way back there was the myth of like, don't eat any carbs after 7 p.m. kind of thing. And, and a lot of that was just like, you'll get fat if you do that. 
which I, is obviously false, but um, it, it goes to show too that like carbs aren't necessarily bad in the evening. It's not going to prevent you from having a bad sleep unless you're maybe having a ton of processed sugar right before you go mm-hmm. to bed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, um, cool. So the last kind of two things that I wanted to cover with you, um, and this could be a very simple question, like nothing really helps. It's all natural environmental stuff, or it could be an in-depth conversation, a bunch of different things. I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear where you take this, but as we talk about hacks and different things that we can implement in, um, again, I don't think hack is a thing. It's usually habits and, and so on and so forth, but what about like nighttime routines and things that people can just try to do before they actually wind down for bed? Is there anything that you recommend that helps people do so? Absolutely. Um, a pre-sleep routine. So along with, we were talking about napping, we were talking about blue light blocking glasses, um, you know, limiting those electronics if you can before bedtime. And a pre-sleep routine is really, really important to do. And what that does is it sets up your brain and your body for sleep. So we can't just flip a switch and expect to be able to fall asleep instantly. We have to have a good pre-sleep routine. So you want to start about an hour before bedtime, put away the electronic devices, do relaxing activities, maybe yoga, stretching, meditating, um, and then really incorporating uh, maybe a hot bath or a shower, which is shown to um, increase your temperature temporarily, but then decrease your temperature, which is really good for sleep. And then having breathing exercises you know, we t- for our athletes who are there, you know, they just played a night match. They have a hard time coming down off of that. We would recommend the four, seven, eight breathing technique, which is going to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And so what that is, is you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, and then breathe out for eight. And that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Another technique, so if someone's having a hard time getting to sleep or waking up during the middle of the night, another technique that I really like is the cognitive shuffle. So you think of a word, bedtime, let's say, you imagine all the objects that you can that start with B, ball, baby, bag, bus, and then when you can't imagine any more objects, you move on to E and then D, and then by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll be sound asleep. So having those techniques um, is really, really important and key for the ability to help you fall asleep, have good sleep quality, and potentially fall back to sleep. I love it. That's super applicable. And and I absolutely, it was funny as you were naming those things, I was going to bring it up, but you did the breathing. I think that's so huge. And um, I've learned a lot of like PRI breathing and parasympathetic breathing for, um, I don't want to say rehab because I'm not a rehab specialist, but actually helping prevent injuries or, or dealing with lower back injuries, for example, hip shifting and just bringing the nervous system down after training. So adding that into sleep is, is huge uh, prior to bed. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I love it. That's that is extremely helpful. And I think like even just to summarize everything we've talked about, I mean, get seven hours a night at least or 49 hours a week at least. Um, don't worry about the minutiae splitting hairs. Just get to sleep, take a nap if you can, which is really cool to hear that even 10 minutes is going to have a, a good effect. Cause I think a lot of people hear nap and they're like, I don't have time to lay down for an hour in the middle of the day, but like 10 minutes is like mm-hmm. reasonable and practical for a lot of people. Um, blue light blockers, great. Like all these things matter so much. And at the end of the day, if you want to be healthier, you want to have a longer life. If you want to have better performance, muscle and fat loss, you obviously need these things. And I think 
just the fact that there's really no studies that disprove that it's just so important for people to listen to this and take it with like just seriousness to apply into their life. Um, and then the, I guess the last question I will have for you, um, cause I just thought of this and we didn't touch on this with nutrition is if any, do you know of any research that supports intermittent fasting for improving yeah. circadian rhythm and sleep? No, I don't. I mean, I saw, I follow Sachin Panda on mm -hmm. Twitter and I remember him posting something on, it was the slow wave activity of someone who was fasting and it looked like they had a lot of deep sleep occurring from that fasting. Um, and that was an N of one. So I am not aware of any research that has looked at that specifically. Um, but it's definitely an upcoming area that we need to look at. Yeah. And for those listening, if you do want to dive into any type of fasting stuff, he's the guy to go to. He has a lot of really interesting stuff coming out. Um, Amy, thank you so much for coming on. You've covered so many good topics with sleep and so many answers answered, so many questions answered that I've been getting on the podcast and that I've really wanted to ask somebody who's actually a specialist in this, specialist in this. So I, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and shedding light on all this. Do you have anything coming up, anywhere you want to send people, social media, website, anything like that, that you want to shout out to get people to gravitate towards and learn more from you? Sure. I'm fairly active on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm at sleep for sport. That's the number four. I'm working on a website and I'm also working on a sleep optimization app. So um, those, those will take some time, but uh, definitely be on the lookout. I love it. And I'll update the listeners when those come out. So um, again, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for having me, Cody. It's been a pleasure. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.